Welcome to this Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. My name is Marshall Smith, and I typically make an argument here where I advocate for horror as a uniquely interesting genre because it allows, not just allows, it encourages playing at the extremes and the seams of humanity. I love that, Marshall. (laughs) I'm Laura Patterson. Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I fully concur with what Marshall said. And I think horror just lets us, it lets us ask what I find to be the most interesting questions precisely because they lie, as Marshall said, at the the seams and extremes of humanity and human experience. And this film did a really great job of asking a lot of questions. And I think we think maybe not giving us clear-cut answers to those questions, which itself is a really interesting experience. So, yeah, and whether this is horror or not, I suppose, is another question, but just a really a really great opportunity afforded by this film. And that's why I said my intro, oh, I typically argue this, and you said the piece that I didn't say, which is, I typically argue that, but this film might not be horror. And you will have to wait till the very end of the episode to, to hear Laura's impressive response to that very question. Uh, And in the meantime, we are discussing the 2013 film Prisoners, directed by Denis Villeneuve, who has gone on to big fame with films like Sicario and Blade Runner 2049, written by Aaron Guzikowski. And you will, we don't always mention the writer, though we probably should, but in this case, you, you will also hear us explain why they're mentioned specifically here as well. Um, thank you for joining us. Spoilers. There's some, I tried to negotiate that, but there are some minor spoilers for Martyrs. And Martyrs remains our gold standard, our bar of comparison for excellence in modern horror. Definitely put that at the top of your list. Watch that film. We spoil this film and we talk about our films in depth immediately. We just dive in. So we strongly recommend watching the film close to the time that you listen to our episode. And we appreciate that that's a lot to ask. We appreciate it if you if you do that. And we hope it does pay off as you listen. You can find our entire backlog of episodes for free at collectivenightmares.com. You'll also find contact info if you want to send us an email. We love that. In the meantime, if you can recommend our podcast to anyone you know who's into horror movies, into in-depth film discussion, that'd be great. Subscribe to us. And on our Instagram, you can find out more about episodes and see announcements and that kind of thing, which is just at Collective Nightmares. Is there more? Oh, still on Zoom. You know, that's still a thing. And with that all said, we are going to see if we can find our way out of the maze of prisoners. Oh, that, that's good. I'm going to throw out an alternative. We're going to hold you captive for a two-hour-long discussion. <laughs> of <the film. laughs> I think I like who's, who's better. <laughs>
Well, I have seen this film multiple times. I did rewatch it last night. I suggested it. I, I sold it. So I was thinking, I'd be curious to have you go first and see if it did anything for you or lived up to the hype or what you, what you thought. So I think you suggested this film to me also in 2013 because I realized about 15 minutes into it that I had seen it at the theater and it was someone's suggestion and I went by myself and I was pregnant at the time and I don't know how pregnant, I don't know when it was in the year, but that was the year before I had Noah because I had Noah in January of 2014 and I remember loving it first of all and being so thankful to whoever it was who suggested it, which I think was you. And I also remember being really scared in the theater that the baby was going to hear all this, these horrible noises of what was happening. And I was somehow bothered by the fact that I was already being a terrible parent. So yeah, so I have seen it. And surprisingly, it took a while to come back to me. And I actually didn't even totally remember the ending until it happened. And so for whatever that's worth, I have seen it before. I think at your request. And I want to say we even talked about it back then. And I said the same thing I'm going to say now, which was it was excellent. And I'm so glad that we saw it possibly twice and possibly talked about it twice together. I don't know. I mean, I would love to take credit for that. I honestly don't know the first time I've seen it because I've, I've watched it a number of times. Just don't know. If I were to have suggested it to you when it was still in theaters, I would have needed to see it in a theater. And I don't know that I did. But uh, whatever, that, none of that matters. I appreciate you saying that you loved it, but I, it, does, it is a little bit concerning that you say that, but, uh, but you didn't remember seeing it. <laughs> I mean, I, I've said that too, but I also, you know, drank and smoked a lot of pot at some point. And so I guess I have some sort of additional factor for not remembering particular films very well. But, um, but okay, yeah. I mean, I suggested it in part because I don't remember talking about it. I, w- I would love to talk about it. This was primarily a let's talk about it film. And in part specifically with you, because I think it, I think this is a film that is very much rare in the sense that it satisfies both of our, it scratches both of our itches. That's a terrible phrasing. It satisfies both of what you and I individually like most about horror films equally. And I don't think many films do that. There's a lot of films, you know, where, I loved it and you can like appreciate it, but it really isn't your kind of film and vice versa. And I think this film can, or it potentially is both. Which, so yeah, I guess I'll explain that as I very much like films that are symbolic and make an argument and take a stand and drive that, that position as far as it'll go. Laura tends to like films where it's, characters foisted into difficult situations and there's complex and negotiated morality and and not necessarily any sort of uh argument something like that maybe it poses a question rather than an answer okay i would say but i find that really interesting that you say that because as you were giving that lead in i thought is it your kind of movie? Because I don't know. I I think of your kind of movie as being prescriptive as, like you said, having a clear argument and really driving that home and everybody is symbolic of something. And I don't know that I felt that. So I think that's where I would like you to start is lay that argument out for me. Yep, that's fair. My first thought was, oh, maybe it's just a film that does your, your preferred 
measures so incredibly well that it has won me over. Okay, but yeah, I would love to take a stab at this because I've been waiting to do it for for who knows how many years in viewings. And I, it, and I don't think I would have been able to do it after the first viewing, but I see the two primary characters in the film really being Keller, Hugh Jackman, and Loki, Mac Gyllenhaal. Mac? Matt? What's the thing? Jake? Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> and Detective Loki, Jake Gyllenhaal. And... In terms of in terms of symbolic argument, I think there's a massive impugning of organized religion, right? Jake Gyllenhaal was assaulted in a Catholic boys' home, sexually assaulted. We have a priest who is a sex offender, convicted sex offender, who he follows up with. the The parents, uh, the aunt uh, Jones, uh, and her husband were fanatical proselytizing Christians who had a son die from cancer and that they used as pretense to begin kidnapping kids in order to use the, the tragedy of kidnapping and killing kids as a means of turning people against each other and shattering their faith in God. Hugh Jackman praise he there's a or there's a recurring what do you call that um what's the word where it's a it's a musical term but it's like when the whenever that person is on camera they have that sequence of music play i don't know oh for god's sakes (laughs) anyway so there's a recurring usage of him with the lord's prayer and so he's saying the Lord's Prayer throughout this while also, well, we can have that discussion, but at least while also horribly torturing, horribly torturing a, a man who was himself a victim of uh, abuse and um, trauma in the past, past, so re-traumatizing. Is there other religion? So anyway, overall, there's throughout the film, there's numerous examples where really religion is the root, organized religion and the abuse that it has engendered is the source of the systemic evil and the the fall of heroes and like everything throughout the entire film. Um, I find it so interesting that you're leading with religion. And I'll also say the film led with religion because it wasn't the first line basically of the film was a prayer as yes, they were hunting. It's the Lord's Prayer. Or yeah. the, is that the Lord's Prayer? No, Lord's Prayer is serenity. It's the, I don't know, whatever the fuck the prayer is, but uh, it's something. And it's so <laughs> well, funny because that's not, it's not where I would have gone first. I don't even think I would have gotten there a third necessarily in assessing the film. I mean, I would have gotten there eventually. You're right. There were definitely religious themes going on. And I suppose I would say critical it was critical of religion. I would agree with that. But that's funny. I would have said vigilante justice. Oh, that, God, was, really? that was what the whole film centered around for me. And whether that was justified and a positive and we want to see these characters as heroes or whether it was considered a problem and ill-founded and led to a bunch of terrible consequences and should never have happened. It felt to me like a referendum on that. So I, and I don't want to, we can keep going down the religion road, but I'll just throw that out there. That's interesting. 
I don't think I would have said that the first time I watched it. Or the first couple times I watched it. I mean, who knows? For whatever reason, last night, that's what I noticed in particular. Clearly, then, Vigilante Justice is the other, is another primary issue. It's pro- I guess is it really the other, uh, is the other motif. Yes. And Keller, Hugh Jackman, is is absolutely the the character who is symbolic of the individualism, the libertarian outside of the system. And Jake Gyllenhaal is, Loki is the example of the system works. Sort it, of. It, but he's like, he's a vigilante cop at the same time. I mean, he has, I think he shares a lot of characteristics with, is it Keller? Wolverine? <laughs> Can we just call him Wolverine? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Keller, um, Keller. Or, or Hugh or whatever, something. But uh. <laughs> I think they share a lot of characteristics in their, I know better, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve this my way. And also had a lot of the same flaws in that when they did that, when they went out on a, a limb and did what they thought was right, breaking the rules and breaking what the maybe normal social contract would have been in these circumstances, there were really serious negative consequences. And sometimes it kind of worked too. And I just found the film to be a really interesting tension between, I left the film trying to figure out if Wolverine, <laughs> Keller, if he was a hero and if Loki then was also a hero of the film because they did it their own way and they got this done and they solved the problem or if they were actually problems because they both, I mean, Loki's policing behavior was problematic throughout the film, especially in the context of the Black Lives Matter environment that we're in now. I think it was just very screamingly noticeable how he was terribly breaking rules throughout the film and it results in someone killing himself in custody because he can't do things the way he's supposed to and he lets his emotions take over. He ends up in that car chase when he's trying to get Anna. That was Anna, right? It was Anna and Joy. I don't remember which was which. I think it was Anna. Anna he, is white. Okay. Anna he is Keller's kid. Yeah, then he was trying to get Anna to the hospital, and he's speeding in the rain through a bunch of traffic, nearly causing many accidents. Like, yes, he's trying to save Anna, and he's so focused on this mission of his, but there's collateral damage all over the place. And I don't know if you noticed when they showed that newspaper the next day, that there was, like, the, the story about, like, people rushed to the hospital in response to a car accident. I don't know if that was supposed to be him or not, but it certainly could have been. And so he was trouble. Keller's whole thing was trouble. I mean, he re-traumatized a victim based on not enough evidence because he was going to get this done on his own. He had his hunch. He was going to do it his way. And that ended up being horribly problematic. Yet at the end, the film, if we consider resolving the mystery, the film's referendum, which I don't know if we do, that was the biggest question I left with. But if we do consider the resolution of the mystery as saying, okay, this got done, everybody's reunited with their families and things worked out, then we could say, Loki and Keller, good job. Good job taking matters into your own hands. But also at the same time, I spent the whole film thinking, you people are terrible. Both of you need to step out of this role, stop. You know, and this ties right into things we've talked about with masculinity, right? And the, I'm going to be the big man and get this done, which both of them had. I'm going to not play by the rules. I'm going to not listen to, you know, Rules, sure, to some extent, it makes sense to break the rules. And also there are rules that are there because 
we're actually trying to collaboratively get along with other people in a way that's super helpful and important. And so like, don't take a suspect who hasn't been found guilty at all and start torturing him when you really don't know that's what's going on. That's like a rule that there's some collateral damage when you break that rule. And Loki is like singular focus on this case at the expense of plenty of other people who very well may have died in response to him trying to get done what he wanted to get done. That's an important rule. So like, I don't know. It just felt to me like that was the, the core issue of the film. And I couldn't figure out if how much the film was throwing a question at us or throwing an answer at us. That, that's very interesting to me. I did not. I think now what you're saying does, does resonate with me more strongly that, but I would still argue that Loki is the, by the, by the book example of, of this, of institutions. And okay, wait, being, wait, but except every time he goes to a new location, he breaks the rules, right? When he first shows up at the priest's house, he breaks in and the priest is passed out on the floor and he makes a point to say, oh, you don't mind me looking around, do you? And then digs around in the basement and finds whatever he's going to find. When see, he gets to- see, I took that precisely differently. <laughs> this is, we maybe need a lawyer, but uh, he has probable cause. He, he's actually going exactly by the book. It's, is it unethical? Probably, but it's, it's by the book. If, if you are a convicted felon and a cop shows up at your door and you don't answer the door and you look like you're in danger, meaning he's passed out on the floor, cops can enter you. That's, there's no, that's, that's no violation of probable cause or search and seizure. He basically just showed up because he thought he was going to check out the registered sex offenders. Sure. Nearby, right. Yeah. Okay. And did he know that he was passed out? Yeah. He, he looks in the answer. window. He knocks on the door. He calls his name and then he goes around. He looks in a window that is otherwise unobstructed, sees the priest pass out on the ground. Okay. Maybe. So you're saying he could have been concerned about the priest. Like there's something wrong with him. He has passed out on the floor. Oh, I don't think he was at all. I think he was using that as pretense, but it was still like, if you looked at the letter of the law, you, uh, an officer of the law can do a, a protective sweep if they think that someone in the building is in some sort of danger or distress. Someone okay, can't so answer maybe, the door, someone's passed on the floor. Again, that's, that was my example. I, I really what about killing Creepy Maze guy? I mean, that was definitely breaking the rules. That was breaking the rules. Uh, however, uh, I was just going to say that the only real instance or the only instance that struck me during the, during the film of, of a true violation of the, of the rules was that exactly. And what driving was, with Anna. Yeah, whatever. Are you kidding really? me? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it is in the suburbs. I sit on my, at my bar in Colfax and watch cops scream 70, 80 miles an hour down Colfax all but the like time. through through he, they're just crossing traffic that hadn't stopped and so he zips through and the cars are like spinning out in the rain that seems like trouble he had lights on he's a police vehicle he has right of way again i'm not I, i'm just i'm just saying as a representative of the way we have policing organized in our society again like you said obviously we're having a a, a crisis of of reevaluating those very rules right now but as far as the narrative of the film emergency vehicles have right away i, 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 don't, I don't not like that right like i can't imagine that's true if you if you have your lights on that you can go running into like traffic that's running perpendicular to you when people haven't stopped yet 
and just make cars go screeching left and right. I mean, he was being, he was, he was being trouble. And didn't he do the same? Maybe he didn't. I don't know with Keller's weird house, if he broke in there when he wasn't supposed to or not. Uh, that was, I think, uh, that, that's funny you said that. Okay, so on those are on the same page. That was oh, he absolutely, did. Wait, he that did. was absolutely a violation. He, he's tearing, as soon as he pulls that board off a window, he, he's skirting the law. Yeah. And so he does, and he does demonstrably endanger people because he ends up getting his one suspect gets shot, shoots himself because yeah. he puts his gun in his possession. Right. And I do think that traffic stuff especially when you add in the argument that there was that newspaper article shown right afterwards. I think that was meant to be somewhat problematic. So maybe at least you can grant me the parallel there between Keller's character playing by his own rules because he knows better. And I think Loki in many cases doing the same thing. Okay. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think the, the news newspaper headline about, I mean, no one died. It was injured, right? Two people are injured. Hospitalized. I think so. Or two people were rushed to the hospital or something yeah. like that. Okay. And it is still significant to me that Loki is Loki is acting on behalf of institutional power and Keller is acting on behalf of individual power. And I think it's even more significant that that uh Keller's father was a prison guard who killed himself. So he was the he was the institutional power. His father was, Keller's father was, and that institutional role ended up with him killing himself. And that apparently that basically that's that's basically the only background we get on Keller. So presumably we can attribute his like pray for the best, be prepared for the worst, or whatever his his slogan is. And all of this uh, individualistic, uh, all of his individualistic uh, beliefs were directly linked in reaction to the fact that institutional power failed his family, failed him as an individual. The moving outside the law, I think is significant. I think you're right. Even if we disagree on, on one or two of the instances, the suspect, or what is his name? Taylor? Ben? The maze guy? I don't know. Even if his, the the suicide notwithstanding, yes, that's endangering, whatnot. But when he goes in and punches him or smashes his face on the table or whatever it is, that for me is the real break where, and I think, again, that's where like Hugh, where Keller is moving towards, Keller is moving towards the institutional power because he's stepping back into essentially the role that his father had. He's created now a prison. And he is now the prison guard. He, he's, he's moving, he's being pulled back towards that. And Loki, like you said, is being pulled away from working within the system by this case. But all of that, uh, so all that vacuum, they start out far apart and they, they are pulled to, I really, that's, uh, that would be the, like the, the touch point. I think you're, you're right. Where, where Loki starts then torturing, arguably steps in and, and assaults the the suspect, is where he crosses and touches the line, the unethical line that that Keller crosses when he starts beating up Alex. They have now converged on they're both unethical in, in at least 
they've touched. I mean, Keller's obviously further off in the weeds because he's been brutalizing this this guy for however long days. But uh, and wouldn't you say in that that they're both doing that out of a rejection of institutional power? Because Keller's doing it because he doesn't believe the institution is going to accomplish what it should. And so he's taking matters into his own hands because he has to. And Loki is doing it coming from an institutional position and drifting in this individualistic, I know better than my institution direction. I don't think it's a rejection on the part of Loki. I just don't. I think he is trying to work within the institution. So he's a, what's the, um, Lummert's, your hand signals aren't, aren't helping. <laughs> that's, that's not doing it. Uh, is that not Lover? Uh, who did um, who did Leighton and Manifest functions? Oh, I, I feel like you're close in your word, but I'm not going to get it. Damn it. <laughs> this is why we have PhDs. Merton. Golly. Okay. So Merton also had a typology. Oh God, I'm so glad I found that. And it took me only, <laughs> oh, Patty, Patty Adler would be so disappointed in me right now. <laughs> I knew that. I knew that for a long time, I swear. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, all right. Okay, so uh, Merton has a deviance typology that is on one axis is cultural goals and on the other is institutionalized means. Sociology moment. We haven't done one of these in a while. And let's see, if you accept the cultural goal and reject the institutional means you're an, you're an innovator, innovation. And so just to step back for a second, cultural goals have to do with you wanting what the culture you're in tells you you should want. And then institutionalized means accepting or rejecting, say, do you take the, the means that are provided to you through the structure of the society that you're in in order to accomplish those goals? And if you both want what you're supposed to want and you do it the way you're supposed to do it, then you're a conformist because you're conforming to what society wants and you're doing it the way society wants you to. And then what you're talking about is if you say accept the goals but reject the means, then you're innovating. You're doing that in a, in a new and interesting way to get what everybody else is after. And I think you're talking about the retreatism part here, right? So if you reject the goals that society puts forth and you also reject the means, then you're considered as having retreated from society. You're not going after something you're supposed to want. You're not doing it in a way you're supposed to want it. So you're, you're sort of detached from society. And I think the overall argument of this had to do with the fact that people would generally like to be conformists, but if you don't have access to the approved means to get at the goals that society tells you you should want, then people will find other ways. And so it was a theory of deviance saying that basically people will often engage in deviant behavior, not because they don't want to do what they're supposed to do, quote unquote, but because they can't, because they don't have access to those means. You know, they can't go to college or do whatever it is that they're sort of supposed to do according to society to get what they, what they're supposed to want. Right. Which is the strain structural strain theory is they are, straining against the structural bounds by which they've found themselves. And so this isn't exactly what I was thinking, but I would, I would have Loki here and like being moved down to this. And, uh, so you're saying he's an innovator who moves into retreatism. He moved towards it. Yes. And, and I think, uh, Keller is, he accepts the goal of like wanting to, he accepts the goal of wanting to, to, how, um, how about this? I don't think he cares 
So I'm going to say reject in the fact that I don't think he cares either way. He just wants his daughter back. He doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about following the rules. He doesn't care about, you know, he never brings up a, it's never like, let's put this guy in prison or let's put him to death or whatever. It's, we are now working outside the system. I don't care about any of that. What I am going to do is whatever it takes to get my daughter back. And Loki is still, I mean, he's focused on the daughter, but it's, but it's, I, we need to let the system work. You're right that Loki makes more of the argument of we need to let the system work. But I think Loki is himself an innovator within the system. I mean, I would honestly put both of them in the innovation category. And I would argue that they both accept the cultural goals of save those sweet little girls. That's a pretty easy sure. cultural goal to wrap, your, to, to wrap yourself around. And I would say conformity would say sit back and let the system do what it's supposed to do. And Keller certainly doesn't conform. He says, nope, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going outside the bounds. Yes, what I'm after is the same thing society would tell me I should want, but I'm not going to sit back and let the societally sanctioned ways accomplish it. And I think with Loki, I would argue that he does the same thing, just maybe to a lesser extent, because you're right, he's, he's embedded in the institution, but he doesn't really, maybe you could argue that he plays by the rules as much as one would expect a representative of the institution to do so. If that's true, I have a hard time, I don't know, I have a hard time with the scene where, again, the maze guy, I don't know his name, where he shoots himself. I think there are some really, some points interjected into this to really make him have deviated from that institutional role. And I was amazed when that happened, that there was no reprimand for him. Like, there there seemed to be, I, I was surprised that there was no institutional reprimand for like, you just got somebody killed. You just got a suspect killed in custody. And everybody's talking about it like, well, whoops. There aren't. He, he, he uh, you're right. It's not anything elaborate, but the the chief or whatever tells him to go fuck himself, or he can stuff his saris in a sack, or whatever he says to him. And uh, you're right. How about this? I, I think this is all very interesting. I would like to just reinterject or interject that, and this is where I why I think I started with religion is. I feel like if you zoom out, what this says to me is that whether it's people acting with institutional means or it's people acting outside of institutional means or with institutional power or outside of institutional power, the corrupting evil of organized religion and the havoc that it's wrecked destroys both of those systems. So like the umbrella, like ideological failure is religion. It's so interesting that you put it on religion because I was going to put it on masculinity and so maybe we should just go down both of those roads. It could be both. And maybe, yeah, maybe it is. I don't I mean, know. It could totally be both because we see the, the, I mean, the abuse of, the abuse of Jake Gyllenhaal, the abuse of Loki at the hands of the priests at whatever his, I can't think of the word, the Catholic boys' home. Sexual assault to be penetrated is, is seen as this absolute attack on, on masculinity if you are a man and you are a victim to, to sexual assault, to rape, that is you being fundamentally and completely unable to live up to the very basic level of masculinity, which is you should be able to defend yourself. And the, the masculinity on the side of, of Keller is to be a patriarch and to keep your family safe, particularly your daughter, because your son being a 
representative masculinity and training is supposed to have some sort of agency on his own, particularly when he gets to adolescence. And so you are not necessarily as responsible. Like there's a point where it's like, Oh man, a stand on his own two feet and blah, blah, blah. But of the little girl, like that is your thing. And, and you're right. His wife very clearly calls him out. You promised you could keep us safe. And he is, they're both absolutely representatives of patriarchy, the police and the family, the police being a masculine patriarchal institution and the family being a masculine patriarchal institution. They're both wielders of violence. And I believe Keller goes out and kidnaps Alex, right? Kidnaps Alex right immediately after his wife makes that comment to him about, I thought you could protect us and I thought you could keep us safe. So he very much seemed to be reacting to at least that drive in himself. Okay. So that's gender sexuality is my jam. Let's, uh, let's run down that because then I find it, well, one, it's fascinating. I didn't really focus on that. Uh, you're right. But two, apparently I'm, I'm drifting away from my, <laughs> my, uh, <laughs> my, uh, Misandry roots. <laughs> what, what would come to daddy I, think? <laughs> before we dive into that, can I just say one thing in sort of closing in what we were saying before? Yeah, least, please. Oh, yeah. One point that I don't, I don't know if I made as well as I would like to. And that's that if I think this were a clear, if this were to be a clear argument about, say, individualism versus institutionalism, whatever you want to call it, um, I think Keller would have succeeded in spite of an institution that was failing and by the books. And I think all having all of these nods in there with Loki to being not by the books and also having the institution in many cases do a better job than Keller did really confused that argument for me. And so I, that's why I, when we started this, I said I, I didn't find it to be prescriptive because I felt like it threw out a lot of questions in that realm, but it didn't really answer them. And we can, obviously we can get to the end later, but at the end I was trying to figure out, okay, is this a win for, who's this a win for on that sort of institutionalism versus individualism with a bunch of masculinity thrown into the individualism side on that sort of spectrum, who, who succeeded? And when I saw, I thought that both Loki and Keller sort of succeeded together at the end. And that's why I was tempted to tie it all back to this individualistic masculine motivation behind them. And so just to, in case I didn't say that clearly enough before, I'll just say that and set it aside. But when we talk about masculinity, that's how I felt like it, it linked them together. Absolutely. And this is very much why in particular, I wanted to discuss it with you because that, because that is, or that is my sense of the film sort of at an instinctual level. And I came into the discussion presenting presenting arguments, but doing that as a way to start laying things out so that we could, we could sort through everything. And I think, I think maybe I started, well, I do still have, I still stick by what I said about religion. I I do agree. I think your argument about masculinity being as important as religion or being the other, if we zoom out, those are the two fundamentals. And then the layer of institutional power, individual power is then secondary. And then we end up with the questions. Like you said, asking questions, that's totally why I wanted to discuss it. And I thought you would appreciate the film is it's not particularly clear to me. And I've watched it however many times and I, I still don't. And I guess you sort of asked, but I wanted to try to make the argument because I've not ever had opportunity to do that. 
And I don't know if it's there, but I got to try to do that to be able to sort out if it is there or not. So absolutely, you're right. And I appreciate that you do that of correct me or challenge me so that we can, we can sort that out. Yeah. And I'm not denying that religion's there also. I absolutely think we need to dive into religion. Uh, I'm not even, like you said, I'm here for the discussion. So I'm not even throwing that argument as the predominant argument, but it's what I saw as the predominant one. So I just want to make sure that I've stated that somewhat clearly as we kind of move into our next stage of discussion here. Oh, I think it's absolutely something that needed to be brought up and, and uh, I appreciate you doing that. You want to go down the gender road? Yes, because now the question for me is, uh, what does that mean then, given that the ant is the villain, right? And that is the, that's the next piece. What, what it's, what's her? Holly Jones. Holly is our villain. I, you know, and I have to say, just as a, a general note here, I found this film to be so interesting because in many ways, I felt like it challenged problematic societal stereotypes. And I felt like it also reinforced some of them at the same time. And sometimes it reinforced them, but less than I would have expected. And so it's like, does it get credit for that? Does it not? You know, and I'll give an example just so it, Please, yeah, yeah. what I'm saying, but like the fact that our, our white family was our, the predominant actors in the film and the black family were kind of the sidekicks. And I felt like it did really reinforce that power hierarchy. Yet at the same time, many films wouldn't have even had the second family be a black family. And so I I just kept running into spaces like that where I was unsure if it was being progressive or just not progressive enough or, or what. So anyway, sorry, I don't want to get too far off track, but yes, you're right. The, The example of like Holly being the villain and at the same time being potentially this argument about masculinity where, where masculine power, I don't know, unless they problematize masculine power clearly enough that that actually is a problem, but I wasn't sure it wasn't validating it by the end. And then it's also strange that Hollywood be, the primary villain because that kind of challenges that and that provides some nuance. I don't think that's sidestepping to to discuss uh, the Birches, the black family at all, because, because like you said, they, many films presumably would not have even done that. And having the Birch mother, Nancy, she ends up being complicit in the torture of Alex she seems to be the driver in that household. She, I felt like she made more of the decisions and the husband deferred to her more so, which was a nice nod, again, to not having just masculinity always be in control. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I, I'm sorry, I have a couple of things to say about that. One is that, that this is exactly why, oh, okay, I've got so many thoughts right now. Post-Civil War, the emergence of... So the Mammy caricature is primarily known as this uh, desexualized, uh, she's a larger woman, desexualized, and that, and was the caretaker of the white children and was, and was happy to be in that role. And it was, we're going to treat this oppressed person a little bit better, and that's going to show how gracious and generous we are. But within the black household, the Mammy was seen as, an authoritarian figure and the head of the household. And that was used, that was weaponized to characterize black families as backwards because patriarchy and white patriarchy was obviously the best way to organize a family and to have black families where the woman was in charge and 
held the powers of violence or um, or traits of masculinity, of hegemonic masculinity. So there, that that is problematic there because that calls back to those sorts of roots. But then, like you said, at the same time, and to add to that is the somewhat feminization of Terrence Howard Franklin, who is, he, he's more effeminate, hegemonically feminine than, than Keller. He, he cries, he resists, he's soft-spoken. And like you said, he, he defers to his wife. But then we also have Joy, who is the little black girl. She's the one who's able to escape. So she has like agency and they do cut. I don't, I think they kind of attribute that to just chance, but, but she does, she, she does accomplish that. And they're also, they're not the full nuclear family because they only have the daughter. No, they, no, they have two daughters. They don't have the son and a daughter. They do totally just neglect the older sister. And there's more character development around uh, son, whatever, Keller's kid, somebody, oh, let me see here, Ralph, <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. It's so interesting. First of all, I didn't, I didn't realize that you're absolutely right, that, that the characterization of the black mother, I don't remember her name now, but that that both draws on the problematic stereotypes that you were bringing up, and I'm so glad you said that. And it's it's interesting because again it's like the film is just constantly this juxtaposition Mm -hmm. of I couldn't figure out whether it was being helpful or not because then her husband so her husband is seen as emasculated or feminine and I agree with that and partly I found that to be problematic but I also thought you know if you if this had been flipped and if he had if they had been the driving family then you have this black man enacting violence and that would have been worse and so I, I think it was better the way it was. So it was, it was a strange thing where it's like, yes, our, our white family is sort of leading the charge, but then again, it'd probably be worse if the black family was, and at least the black family was there. And, and then also, like you're saying, there, well, there's a sort of problematic stereotypes within the black family. I, 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 I don't know. It, you know, and, and the fact that Joy was able to get away is both agency on her part, but I also wondered in that moment if it protracted the film because who we really care about is the white family and the white girl. And so when joy gets out, sure, joy's here, but we haven't solved our problem yet because our little blonde girl is still missing. And if it had gone the other way around and I'm wanting to say Wolverine, I'm sorry, <laughs> Keller, that's his name. If, if it had been Keller's girl who was in the hospital and it was joy who was still missing, it would have felt like this afternote at the end of the story, which again raises this problematic tension between our main family and the, their sidekick family, so to speak. Totally. And to have Franklin, the, the Terrence Howard, be more feminine or have more hegemonically feminine, traditionally feminine characteristics is really only problematic if those are maligned. And I don't know if he's presented as, you know, I think he's actually presented as the as the reasonable one, and it's it's Keller who pushes him into evil. So like you said, if you flip that, that would be really problematic. But the way that is it, it is, it's like he is trying to be reasonable. He's trying to to navigate this, and it's it's like the white guy who's like, no, 
we will cross these lines. We will devolve into this sadism or this, uh, this totally ethically complicated or problematic place. You are going to go along with this. You need to do it for your daughter. And Franklin's, Franklin's feminine components are in some sense vindicated because they get joy back first. See, I don't know. I, that's why we need, to, we need <laughs> yeah. to get to the end of the film too at some point because right. if this was, if Keller was a hero in this story and more broadly I would say, I would argue, or at least from my viewing of it, what I took was that Keller and Loki were collectively heroes and they were heroes based on this individualistic masculinity that they imbued problematically, but still they yeah. won because they succeeded at the end and they like together right. through their persistence or whatever, they got to this point then in that case, Franklin is getting a bit of a reprimand by the film because he didn't, Mm. he needed Keller there to take care of this for him and he needed Loki there to take care of this for him. I don't know if that's what the film was saying, but I don't know. And maybe we're not supposed to know, which is why I'm back to this question of, did it just throw out all these pieces and make us wonder? Because I don't know at the end if we were supposed to think that Keller and Loki really succeeded or if we were really just supposed to see all of these problems. I mean, we were obviously sort of supposed to see the problems. This was not just a straight up hero story of individualistic masculinity takes charge and and beats down the institution and does it way and everybody's happy at the end. You know, there's even direct comments at the end between Keller's wife and the, and I guess Loki saying, oh, he's going to jail, right? Well, I miss him. He was a good man. So they do this sort of back and forth throughout maybe maybe it was just a series of questions and not answers in which case franklin's not necessarily being put down by the film he's just a different he's a different way of engaging and maybe you get to decide which is right or which is wrong yeah and i do want to i think it's worth acknowledging that that because of how because there isn't an obvious clear characterization of the black characters I think there's at least a possibility to be considered that they have, they have transcended the, the stereotypes. They've made them fully developed, complex enough characters that they are resisting these simplified stereotypes and symbolism that often or would come into play, except, except they're, they're not they've talked, we talk about this, about like transcending a binary or, or resisting a history. I think there is an argument for that, that they, these, all these things would be a lot more problematic if they weren't, if they weren't nuanced and just that and complex and like more to them, you know? I just think that's worth considering that as a possibility that maybe they're not just resisting or feeding stereotypes or, or problematic portrayals, they really included them fully as secondary, but, but important, valid, whole characters. I think that's true. I, I want to just give a, another highlight to what you said about the older black daughter being basically neglected in the storyline, whereas the older white son, and, and I don't know if it's, that's white versus black or if that's actually more so male versus female, that the son was important because he tied into this view on masculinity, whereas she didn't have a role in that ideology. So she was basically left out of the film. But notwithstanding, I still think I agree with what you're saying. I'm wondering right now if it would actually be helpful to throw out a question 
a very basic question that I don't think I know the answer to, but might help answer some of these nuances we're digging in. And that is, is what Keller did with Alex wrong? Now, in some ways, oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, right? Because Alex- Oh, no, I was saying, yes, that is the question. Yes, go ahead, run with that. I love it. Okay, so yes, obviously it's wrong because Alex was abused as a child. He just got more abused. He never did anything wrong. And this was just a traumatic, awful, horrible, horrible, horrible thing he did. And Keller was demonstrably wrong. Like he thought that this was going to lead him to the answer and it didn't. But it kind of did because had, had, that, had Alex not been kept in the storyline, Alex's family would have fallen off the cop's radar and very possibly they wouldn't have found, you know, the, the reason that Loki ends up going into the house and having the confrontation with Holly was because he was going there to tell her that they found Alex. And so, I mean, in like a butterfly effect kind of way, if Alex had never been kidnapped and also if Wolverine hadn't been hanging around, sorry, <laughs> hadn't been hanging around her house because he was so hung up on this idea of Alex have, being the key, he wouldn't have figured out what was going on there either. And so in a sense, he may have been right that those girls would not have come home if he hadn't gone off as a vigilante and if he hadn't done what he did to Alex. On the other hand, it was just wrong and awful. And it was only by butterfly effect kind of associations that it ends up solving the problem. He kidnapped an innocent person who was a victim of abuse who couldn't communicate well and then tortured him for not communicating. Okay. I had a more problematic view of that. And that is, Alex did know. Alex is not innocent. He is guilty. He did take the kids. He handed them off to his aunt or his, whatever, his uh, captor, but his aunt. Uh, He could have said. Did he know? Was he able to do that? Because what what we heard as a story was that Alex wanted to give them a ride in the camper. And she, Holly, says to Keller, I think it was to Keller, I, Alex just wanted to give them a ride, but it was, I was the one who decided that we weren't going to give them back. They couldn't go home. And she, she says he did nothing wrong. She says he never laid a hand on them. And she says all he wanted to do was give them a ride. And we learned that he had this traumatic event when he was young and he stopped communicating when he was 10 or something. And so I don't think, I don't think we know that he knew anything. He said a couple things that were vaguely helpful. Well, this is very interesting to me. I appreciate fully, and I'll say for the record, that he was himself a victim of profound abuse. And that needs to be considered. They said he had the intellect of a 10-year-old, and he wanted to play with these little girls. And she says, I, I decided what we were going to do with them, and that wasn't him. Uh, they do, but they also... They also... But he also... How about this? I think that my assessment of Alex was that whatever his IQ emotional development was, he was still capable of saying, my aunt has them. He said that they weren't crying when I left. He is able to say, you know, I'm not Alex. And Again, I understand that he himself was the subject of, I mean, lifelong abuse. Uh, However. And he's noted as having communication difficulties as well. He is, but we're not, I mean, he, 
the, the other things that he said, being able to know the Batman smells Christmas jingle, whatever he can say. I, I just, I, I, I took it as he could have said, my aunt has them. He didn't because of the abuse that he had endured and the prison Mendel emotional prison that he had been put in by his aunt of, I cannot betray her. But for me, that was him not really being innocent so much as uh, innocent doesn't just doesn't seem the right word of like passively enabling the ant. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Keller should have taken and tortured him. But I think you ask exactly the right question is it still was a crucial component to to the girls being found and saved. And so if he hadn't locked him up and, and tortured him, the girls wouldn't have been saved. And that, I, that is actually what I thought you would probably lead with as the most interesting ethical question of, do we sacrifice? And that's where I, I just think we'd like or start to dabble into the martyrs territory, right? Of, okay, you, I mean, this like just this ongoing brutalization of this person, but at what point do they, again, given all of this experience of abuse, if we're going to excuse everyone who's had abuse from perpetuating that abuse, we can't do that. Because then we would say, well, if you were abused as a kid by your dad, we can excuse the fact that you're now going to abuse your kid when you become a dad. We can't do that. And so... But then again, he's abused. He has the mentality of a 10-year-old and he has communication difficulties. So I, I, let, let's say at a bare minimum here that there's a question mark presented by the film. In oh, terms yeah. Of culpability, because you and I can't even agree on how culpable we think he was. Neither one of us knows. We don't know this man. We haven't spent any more time than the film gave us with him. And so, I mean, your argument, I think, is that, oh, he was perfectly capable and should have. And my argument is that I don't think he was capable and we can't really know. And I, and I think what we need to glean from this is that the film didn't give us a clear referendum on that. Because if they had, we would probably have come to an accord on whether he at least could have, you know, whether he could have helped if he, whatever, I would say, had wanted to or something. I don't know. But so, okay, so we have, we have the end point of that, which is saving the girls. But I just want to play devil's advocate for a minute here, too, and throw out a couple other important points, I guess I would say. And that's, we can look at tragedy, tragedy and the fact that of what Alex was put through in this whole film, or at least by Keller. We can look at tragedy, let's just say that this could have been a film, it wasn't, but it could have been an entire film about somebody else who was driving down the road that day that Jake Gyllenhaal just like zipped off in whatever and ran into. It could have been a film about the family of the guy that the other suspect with the mazes who apparently was just a weirdo who used pig's blood and whatever. Oh, wait, we have to talk about that connection, though, because he had the clothes or something. There was some relationship there, wasn't there? There was a relationship there. My understanding of that was he had been a prior victim and was now and was complicit because he's in there shopping for clothes. I took it as he was the one who was procuring clothes for the other kids that they had been kidnapping and killing over the years oh that's interesting okay okay so his his death is not a he's certainly more culpable if we're going to look at maybe a spectrum of culpability 
we would say, I, I would put Alex lower on the culpability spectrum than that guy then probably because. But now that you say that, I think it was me filling in the blanks because the only, is the only clothing that they found that was victim's clothing Joy and Anna's or was, or was there other clothing that was, didn't, did they say everything else was pig's blood? It was, there was, was the only. Yeah, it was only Joy and Anna. But he was, to, to have the maze, he had to have been a victim of the, the, the Holly and Hubby, whatever his name was. Yes, but they also made reference to it being in that book. And he had the book or something. For a yes. moment, I thought he was just a weirdo who was enacting this type of crime, but not actually doing it on mannequins in his backyard. Okay. But, but the, the connection remains that he was a victim of the abuse. He was another kid who had been kidnapped and, and was abused. Yes. And he may have been involved. Maybe we don't know. Maybe this is another place where we don't know. I, I don't, I, I don't think we have no, you're right. You're right. It could be, we don't know, but it, I, it doesn't seem like we know. I get the impression that he was kidnapped, abused, somehow escaped, but because he was drugged, never understood how to reconcile or was able to say they did it or really ever just figuring anything out. So he was reliving this trauma. So that would put him as a second victim, another victim who is then sacrificed doubly. I guess so. I guess so. I guess he also gets killed in pursuit of getting these girls back. So then we have two boys or two men who are sacrificed to save two girls. And we still haven't talked about the fact that they, all of the victims that we see in the film, other than Joy and Anna are boys. Right. And so the, and so we have Holly, who's the mastermind villain and we have the two girls, but everybody else is, is men. And anyway, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't want to, I didn't mean to derail that. Well, yeah, no, just one other important point that I want to throw out. Alex at the end is reunited with his family after 26 oh, years right. or whatever. And so there's another point of, you know, if, if he hadn't been beat to shit and Keller. tortured for six days, yeah, <laughs> he wouldn't I have mean, gotten, if, he wouldn't have been saved. If Keller hadn't done this, the whole ring wouldn't have fallen apart. And Okay, yes, the one the one victim get kills himself, which is not good. But the other victim then gets reunited with his family, which must have been lovely. So again, I'm just I'm just feeling like, okay, so it did just lay out a lot of questions. Cause we're almost finding arguments and counter-arguments for everything that we're trying to assert here. So here is my question. And this is not me being deliberately antagonistic. It really isn't. How come then you or we, because I've been on the other side of this too, how come then we both really enjoyed, I love this film. I think it's uh, just fantastic when we don't have answers. And the most recent example, again, I'm not antagonizing, it's just prominent, is that we, we had the same discussion of Knives and Skin where we had these counter and we didn't have clarity and, and we had, and in that case you hated it. There's some other film that I know where I was come to daddy. We'll use that. Uh, There were questions that were asked and there was lack of clarity and I hated it. 
So if we've had these films in the past where we've had questions asked and characters that were not clearly consistent or, or whatever throughout and we hated it, why then, why, how then were we able to both really appreciate this film? That's a really good question. I'll take a stab at answering it and we'll see if I even agree with my answer by the time I get to the end of it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe because the questions that it raised, how do I say that? I, what I was going to say was I, I didn't have a clear position on the questions that it raised. And so being given more opportunity to think about these questions is fun and interesting and a, a cool intellectual exercise. Whereas I maybe I'll try to maybe draw this back to knives and skin, although this might be a better parallel with come to daddy that with knives and skin, I feel like the argument that it wanted to make, I felt like I clearly understood the argument that it wanted to make. And my concern was that it didn't make the argument clearly enough. And that was the argument it was supposed to be making. And so I, I wanted to see those connections better. Whereas here, maybe it has to do with the fact that the question doesn't have a, a clear answer. I don't know if I even agree with that. I'm just throwing it out there as a possibility. With Come to Daddy, I would say that we both agreed that the, that the question had a clear answer. I thought the film answered it and you didn't. And so that there was ambiguity, apparently, um, based on our two experiences of it. But you're right that here's the one where we, we both are, we're more comfortable in the viewing experience with the ambiguity. Now, part of that might be that we're not even sure what question it's asked because it's, it's talking about so much. There's so much interesting stuff there to think about. And God, I just appreciate a film that, I appreciate a film that problematized the torture. That was, that was probably the best part of this film for me was that we have Keller, the very standard tropey film that I would not have enjoyed very much at all would be Keller going off on his own, torturing this guy, getting the answer and nice, clean pat, the story's done, that's that. And this problematized that dynamic and went from, I mean, the scenes they dragged you through with the torture were really painful. And I didn't think I was on Keller's side. I was pretty darn against what he, I mean, it was one of those things where it's like, he didn't seem to have the reasonable backing, but then they gave you this unreliable narrator kind of thing too, because, well, I start questioning that when Keller says, he said to me, you know, they didn't cry until I left them. Okay, if we believe Keller and they really did, he, Alex really said that, then is what Keller's doing okay? Well, maybe, God, until you see Alex's face. And then it doesn't feel okay anymore. But then you see Alex lift the dog up by the chain and Alex is singing the song the girls were singing. And then maybe it is okay. And I don't know. So that was an interesting question for the film to pose. And I was, I was flip-flopping throughout. But I, I will say that there was a core piece of me that still saw what Keller was doing as problematic. Granted, if I were Keller, I might have felt differently and they didn't let us be Keller. We didn't know if he was telling the truth or not. And so I was always questioning whether he was this version of crazy problematic masculinity or whether he was actually doing something vaguely reasonable. And if, if we had seen, as the audience, had seen the scenes that he says he saw where Alex asserts having a connection to those kids, you know, maybe I wouldn't have disagreed with him so much or I wouldn't have seen him as just this vigilante justice figure that I saw him as. So I'm, 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 that's my proposed answer to your question, that the question itself was interesting enough that it didn't need a, a strict answer. I think what you said, particularly about Come to Daddy and Knives and Skin is exactly right. I might have said that 
I did think Come to Daddy answered the question. I just thought it did it in a totally toxic way. But the broader point is exactly right. And so maybe I shouldn't have limited it to a specific example of... So what I want to say is that one of the reasons we find horror compelling is it lays out these possibilities to explore this morality. And there's, there's very often, uh, because of the, the nature of the genre, there's very often arbiters or, or symbolic holders of good and evil. And they may shift places and they may move around, but it works as a, within a symbolic system to say, this is what the film is. If it's normal and if the, per, the people who are, quote, normals or he, he, hegemonic or standard bearers of, of society and they're presented as good and they triumph over the monster, it's a conservative film because it's reiterating this. And then there's other ways that that can play out. But the least common film, I think, is the one that presents an argument that is or not doesn't present an argument, presents a question. It doesn't line up, this is what's good, this is what's evil, this is who moves from good to evil, this is who survives, and and that's a progressive or a, or a challenging argument or a conservative argument or whatever it is. It's a, like you said, it's an unknown. And so for some, I guess there's just a marvel of, or, or just an admiration of the filmmaking involved. And for all of those reasons, like you said, in particular, the thing with the dog with Alex, it's a two seconds of a, of a two and a half hour film. And it's exactly what you need to be just like, God, maybe he is a terrible, <laughs> maybe he is a terrible person. He just, for zero reason, just you know, choked out this dog. <laughs> And, but like those little details that are, I mean, they're, you know, I actually went and looked up the screenplay author because of things like that, where it was just like, it was just those, those moments of character development that, that all, nothing was uh, out of character. It, It all, but it's still all muddied. Like it didn't, but it didn't muddy. It painted these layers without ever getting muddy in an unintentional way. It's like a Pollock. It's, it's a mess, but it's not. It's organized and there's clarity and there's like something there that's really fun to look at or interesting. Oh, now I'm rambling. <laughs> well, and so like akin to horror films, and, and again, I don't know if this would strictly be horror, but I will put it in the horror genre. Actually, just to draw back really quickly on our Twilight Zone episode, this is a tangent from my tangent. I hope I don't lose my initial tangent. But to draw quickly on our Twilight Zone episode where we talked about why horror can be particularly a good genre for talking about moral questions because if you actually show the horror, if you walk us through and have us actually viscerally experience horror, when you're making a moral argument, you're saying something is good and something is bad. And so if you show us that bad, which horror, that will often land something in the category of horror because you're showing something terrible. But if you show us that bad, you can do a really good job making a moral argument that you can't do if you just skip over making the bad visible and you, you, you execute this argument in some other genre. And so that's why I think this might fall into horror, even though it's not exactly horror. But what I was saying, I guess, is the torture, for example, you know, by walking us through just how painfully 
awful that is and what it actually means. We weren't just told like, oh, Alex is, you know, oh, I got Alex, I'm figuring it out. But we had to sit there and see what that looks like. That's really, really painful and it makes it really, I don't know if I'd say easy, but it's, it's a good way to make that moral argument. And so I, I really appreciated that they laid out a question and then they, they walked us through the pain, really the pain on both sides of that question. We saw the pain the families were in missing these girls. And we also saw the pain that Alex was in. And they made things ambiguous enough that we had to struggle over that question. And we had to struggle being fully aware of the pain on both sides, on everybody's part. And so it was both, I guess I'd say a traumatic or difficult experience, but it also really, really effectively hit home what that question was. And that to me, I didn't lose my first tangent, I'm happy. That to me brings us to the end of the film because then the question is, was it a victory? If it was a victory, the way that we tend to often talk about horror films, right? We would say, okay, well, if we look at who survived and we look at why they survived, or that's gonna tell us something about the moral framework. And so if it were a victory, I think we would have to step backwards as we usually do in these films and say, okay, well, Loki and Keller pulled it off together and they are the heroes of the story and what we wanted accomplished got accomplished. I'm starting to think now, especially as we lay out all of this ambiguity throughout the film, that it wasn't meant to be a clear cut victory, that it was more so meant to be an exercise in those questions. And so maybe that even explains why the film cut where it did, because we didn't have, it would have, they would have had to make a clearer call on whether it was a victory if they had gone past that point. Because if they had, then either, either Keller comes home and everybody's happy or Keller goes to jail and everybody misses him or Keller goes to jail and he deserves it. Or we go see Alex with his family and now we realize what a monster Keller is or, you know, something. There was the Loki is a hero. We don't know. We didn't see any of that. And that probably the, the truth and the reality behind that super complicated question is that all of those things can be true simultaneously. And so which the film chose to highlight would tell us its referendum on what happened and the fact that it didn't give us any, maybe that really tells us that this was meant to be an exercise in thinking through that question and it didn't want us to have an answer. Pyrrhic victory is the term that comes to mind. What's that? Uh, a Pyrrhic victory is a victory, just exactly what you described. It is a victory where the cost of achieving that victory was worse than had you just not fought the battle in the first place. It's like you win, but, but that's just it. And I, I don't know where that's from. I think it's some biblical. Uh, let's see if I'm using that right. Gotta love the internet. This is from Wikipedia. A Pyrrhic victory is a victory that inflicts such a devastating toll on the victor that it is tantamount to a defeat. Someone who wins a Pyrrhic victory has also taken a heavy toll that negates any true sense of achievement or damages long-term progress. I it's, love that. It's from the Pyrrhus of Epirus, whose triumph against the Romans in the Battle of Asculum in 279 BC destroyed much of his forces, and while a tactical victory forced the end of his campaign. Whatever, I just want to get the full Wikipedia out. And I say that because it's certainly at least a Pyrrhic victory for Keller, because now he goes to prison and he ends up being the absent father that his father was after he committed suicide. And the tables have come full circle where his father was a guard in a prison and now he is going to be the inmate in the prison. 
Presumably, and I'm not, I'm not. Well, they say for sure. Well, he does say probably. You're right. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. And I'm, I'm totally not trying to be difficult here. No, 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 be difficult. I'm, I'm enjoying this argument that I want to make, so maybe it could be true. I'm going to argue that by not actually telling us that, because by cutting the film where they did, we don't know. We don't know. Loki could have changed his mind, decided that this was all for the good, and sent Keller and his family off into the witness protection program. I mean, I'm not saying it would have happened, but we don't, we have no idea. It could have been, and God, even if he does go to jail, it might've been hundred percent worth it for him because look, his daughter's back. Daughters. He's the patriarch and he succeeded, but it could also be horribly traumatic because of everything that Alex went through. Alex never gets over this. And if the scene, if the film had closed out with us seeing that, Maybe we would have felt that way or gone to the other victim's family and, and seen what they were going through around all of this. Or there's, there are a series of ways this could have played out that would have answered that question differently. And I want to make the argument now that by showing us none of it, the film precisely was trying to not give us their answer and let us just struggle with the question over it. And I, I absolutely love the reference you pulled into this Pyrrhic victory because I think that might exactly be the question of the film. Was it? Is it? For whom? I want to go back to what a couple of things you were saying. And that's why I, I don't know if you've seen me. I've looked away. I haven't been like texting or anything. I've been taking notes. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll do this first because I think it connects most. And then we'll have to go back. So what you were saying, particularly about the emotional struggle and showing the brutality of the abuse uh, of the torturing and the difficulty of that decision and the emotional toll it was taking on, on Keller and Franklin and uh, I forget Franklin's wife's name, Nancy. Well, one, I want to say that there's something you, in how you were talking about it that seems very akin to what we have often discussed with regard to showing sexual assault on screen where, where we needed to see the, the horror, we weren't allowed to look away. We, we did get some break. We did get some reprieve from that. We don't see him scalded with the hot water. But we know, like, in that box with him, looking at this bloodied, swollen eye that's just this gap of light, you know. I, so there is a lot of that anyway. But that's not the main point. The main point that I was going to say is that emotional struggle, I feel like, I, I think the real question was, it put us in this position of asking ourselves, what would I do? What would you do? This is your daughter, your loved one, or your, at least as a, as a man, I don't know if the masculinity part was a Im impeding for the em empathizing as a, a woman or from a different position, but it was like, there's these expectations I have for myself. There's the love that I have. I don't, I don't feel like I have any good options this seems like the only, only option. Time clock is ticking. And all of these details and nuances that we have brought up, you've brought up, present us with this question of, is there a right answer? And then if there isn't a right answer, how do we impugn? And I don't know if you felt that way, but it was, so it was the emotional struggle. And, and for me, it pulls, the film pulls me through this emotional struggle where I'm like, I kind of understand why, like you said, when he tortures the dog, I'm like, okay, I understand why he took him. And then he's like, well, okay, you're way out of line. I agree with Franklin. Like, you can't be doing this. Okay, you beat him up. There's a point where you got to cut, cut him free. But then he says this and, and it does, it pulls you along with that emotional struggle. And one, that's 
empathy and filmmaking in exemplary ways. But two, that I think for me is also where I pull out some comparisons to martyrs, where at least particularly the first third, that first third where, God, now I don't remember their names, but the one friend is like, what do I do here? Trying to help my friend. I don't know if what she's saying is real. I don't know if there's really a supernatural or a monster here. I don't know if I can believe that the people she's accusing of doing these things are really the ones who are, are, are guilty. I understand what she did. I don't know if that's right. What do I do? How do I help my friend? And I think, so I did present that, which for, for those of you, for people listening, martyrs remains are a high bar of horror for at least this, this century, anything modern. And so when I make a comparison of a film achieving a, some sort of level of, of martyrs, it's not said lightly. And that's partially why I'm explaining myself now rather than just sort of saying it. But th- when you were talking about that emotional struggle, that's when I was like, that's, I think that's part of why I, and it's these same kind of questions of, does this justify that? Can we blame that person? I don't know. What would I do? I don't know. All, all those sorts of things. So I don't know if you have thoughts about that, but. I, about the connection to martyrs? I, I, or, or achieving, not, not martyrs, but getting into that realm. I agree. And I also agree that I respect a film or an argument more broadly that doesn't pull punches. And so I think I would, I would align it with martyrs in that regard as well, that martyrs, it doesn't take the easy route of a film where we're going to show you things to stoke up your emotions in the direction that they're supposed to go. And then things are going to play out that way and it's going to be great. But instead it poses a question and it shows you things that stoke up your emotions very strongly in both directions. And so then you're left in this flip-flop sort of position where you don't know where to land and you keep changing your mind. And that's difficult because you still remember what you felt to five minutes ago when you were empathizing with the other side of the argument. And that really just walks you through the struggle of an argument. And I agree, I agree with you that this film did that as well. And I, the more, I just can't help but get more and more hung up on the ending and how I think that might absolve it of what I was tempted to criticize it for, because I, I wanted to critique it as a problematic victory for at least individualism, if not the sort of individualistic masculinity, I'm going to go off and protect my family and and do the right thing on my own vigilante justice. But I don't think it was a victory. I think we've, we've raised so much ambiguity here. I mean, if you were to look at it very, very basically in some sort of almost, almost 80 slasher film kind of way. Yes. The girls came home. I guess we could say that's a victory, but there's so much of a deeper film. There's so much more nuance and we are so, strongly made to empathize with the other side of that argument. I mean, gosh, even I would even place the fact that the film ends not only with the girls coming home, but also with Alex, at least, at least getting a story about Alex. I almost wish now mm-hmm. that we had gone to Alex's family's house, but maybe, I don't know, that might've been nice, but still we find out he was reunited. He's, he's humanized also. He has the route to achieving this sort of victory is humanized. And by humanizing him, you really trouble all of those scenes where he was just terribly abused. Yeah. And that's, uh, I appreciate what you're saying with that, with particularly the humanization of the, the humanization of multiple people throughout the film and the a core component of 
a sociological imagination, which, which Mills talks about is, is having developing a full contextual, like rich depth of empathy where you can account for or imagine the bigger circumstances that are impacting an individual at a time and place and being able to, to look at things and from their position and try and understand them as a full person equal to you. And doing that is, well, arguably easier with someone who's like a good person, just outright like, oh yeah, they're I like to think of myself as a good person. I, you know, I, I get what they're doing and why they're doing it. They're trying to do the right thing. It gets much more and more difficult when it's someone who's really problematic and to humanize, to humanize, I was going to say everyone in the film is humanized with the possible exception of Holly, but even Holly were given, were given some meat on that bone with the like, well, their kid died of cancer when he was young does that excuse or explain all of this? Certainly not, but we can at least appreciate the trauma of that. And it's not the, like you said, the easy route would have been, oh, she's a psychopath or a sociopath. She's just born evil, whatever, monster kind of thing. We do get some kind of, uh, at least understanding in the sense of getting her perspective, which, which is a challenge to do, particularly for, like you said, doing these terrible things. I end up finding myself thinking like, I could see myself doing that with stuff that I wouldn't like to typically think of myself as being willing to do. <laughs> I agree. And I, and I think even Holly's husband, the narrative around Holly's husband and going to the priest, and we should probably also get back to religion here because we don't want to oh, yeah. let that piece of the argument either. I think the fact that the priest was a registered sex offender, also apparently an alcoholic, but also he killed, my understanding was that he killed Holly's husband because yes. Holly's husband confessed to doing all these things to children and said he wouldn't stop. And so that gives our priest even some, he's got this very problematic piece and this very problematic history, and yet he did something that looks like it's bad on the surface, but then actually maybe was good or helpful, kind of. There's just a lot of nuance around every character, really. Totally. Totally. That's absolutely right with the, with the priest and the Holly's husband. Totally. At least the husband confessed, right? But then at the same time, he said, apparently I'm going to go back and keep doing it. And so, I don't know. Right. Which tends to be how, at least my impression of how confession works. It's like, ah, oh, it's fine. You, you know, reset, go send some more. It'll be okay. <laughs> as long as you come back and say some Hail Marys, whatever the fuck. Um, That's what we thought, until the priest locked you in the basement. <laughs> right. right. <Sorry. laughs> now, I'm going to go back to molesting children, but <laughs> I don't know. Right. Uh, to that effect, that is the priest then working outside of the system also. The priest being an individualist of not doing the forgiveness or whatever the confession is supposed to be where it's secret and it's whatever. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. I don't think we resolved Holly being a woman. And then, like you said, I don't think we resolved... Well, I think I kind of said my piece on religion. Are you saying that that's complicated? Because if we agree that there really isn't like a victor or a winner, that's complicated. Or I think I would make the argument that 
because we don't have anyone who's a clear, nobody really comes out better. I don't think anybody comes out better off than they started in the film. And if I'm going to make the argument that it was all, or the background component that instigated all of this was the abuse that's facilitated by the organized religion and the people acting on, on behalf of it. That's an even further implication of religion of even when people are trying to, to rectify or overcome the abuses of it, it still ended up dragging down eight people or 10 people or however many people there are in the film. So those, that corrosive nature of abuse is reinforced. I think to your point about no one coming out better, I, w- I would nuance that and say that individuals come out better. But Who in comes act- out better? Maybe not better compared to, say, Thanksgiving Day at the beginning. I, well, I guess Alex, sort of. <laughs> Except he's, been, he's now been, like, horribly traumatized again. I mean, he gets well, to go back to mom, but... I, I feel like Franklin and Nancy get their daughter back by the end. And so, I mean, if you're saying better better after the abduction, then, I mean, they, they like, won in this pot. Other people clearly lost. Victim guy who gets, shoots himself. Right. But Franklin and Nancy do end up, they now have participated in the torture of some person that they know is wrong. So when you say they don't come out better, you mean compared to like the start of the film Thanksgiving Day if no abduction had happened? Right. Yes. Right. But I feel like Alex is still a question mark. I mean, we don't know because we don't know him and we didn't, we don't know. We don't know how bad it was at Nancy's house. We don't know. We don't know. I mean, Holly's house? That's what I meant. Yes, Holly's okay. and, and I feel like that overall just makes everything in this film <laughs> more trouble because I'm the one, I mean, I've been arguing all along that the biggest transgression in the film is the torture. And then to say that that ultimately may have benefited Alex is just another messy can of worms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. Again, no, you're right. I find it interesting how much I've filled in in my head because I was going to say, well, presumably it was pretty miserable at Holly's house. She's having you help abduct and and murder children for the majority of your life. But you're right. The day-to-day may not have been so terrible. Or it was. We don't know. Or, oh, right. Or it was. Back to religion, though. Sorry. Right. I certainly agree with you that there's this theme about, I guess, religion being problematic. It certainly doesn't ever help. Is, maybe it's that. Often in films, religion is held up as a savior. And certainly in horror films, it can be. If, if we were to draw back to something like The Exorcist, I mean, you can have a very, very clear religion as savior component. And you can also have more subtle religion as savior components where the good characters go to church or the good characters you know, abide by what might be considered strictly religious values or something like that. I, I want to pull back to teeth in that, that you know, our, our good character was very, whatever, against premarital sex and seemed to fit that mold, I guess. So I don't know. It didn't do that. Religion was never a good thing. Nobody, nobody used it for good. I don't know that they used it explicitly for evil, but Heller, we don't know if he was good or bad. And so his religious piece was a trouble or not, or I don't know. And the priest too, by the fact that he did a good thing also, I, I don't know. I'm not saying he was good. I just... I have a hard time separating my interpretation of the film in that regard with my general animosity towards organized religion. Because 
my first reaction was, well, Keller ends up saying the prayer while he's sitting there torturing Alex. And so that would be along with the abuse of uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and the priest and uh, Holly. It's, it's these folks who are using religion to excuse or justify their abuse and attributing their evil or their, eh, their unethical actions, attributing their negative actions to the, the service of religion or God or using it to their appealing, like he's appealing to God. He's like, you know, I'm praying for whatever, but it doesn't stop him. True. So tie that to the first scene then, because they're, they're shooting the deer and saying a prayer when they shoot the deer. And so first I was super on board with what you were saying, thinking like, oh yeah, you're right. Religion is used to justify harm, torture, something of other people, which is true. Oh, what was it? The, wait, there was a second piece <laughs> that, I, that I wanted to throw out there though. Oh, and that was, if you, we can also think of religion as an institution, mm-hmm. right? And then Holly rejects religion and may, I mean, I'm not saying I would argue this in life. I just wonder if it's the rejection of that institution. Like it's her going rogue. that kind of causes violence and torture and whatever. And then we also have Keller and Loki potentially rejecting an institution, even though it's a different institution and going rogue and that leading to torture. And those slightly seem to go different routes. Maybe the first one that you pulled together is a bit more cohesive though. No, no, no. I don't think those go different routes. I think that's really interesting. You're saying that that Loki is rogue within the police. Uh, Keller is rogue within, I don't even know, <laughs> right? general ethical <laughs> behavior. Holly is rogue within religion. She doesn't, like you said before, with, with Loki, she doesn't reject it. She is now saying... Waging a war on God, I think Right. She's- okay, you know, you're right. So, okay, okay. So, if she is evil... And she is the one waging the war against the institution. You're right. Okay, so that is inconsistent. So everybody's rogue. Some folks are on the side of people are doing, using different things or doing different things with religion, but everybody's rogue. Yeah, and although the fact that it's inconsistent might actually fit our sort of overall theme of this film, if we also then take the part about the priest killing the husband as potentially something that happened through a standard religious structure because the guy showed up for confession. So that was like one element where he used his religious position in a positive way versus everything else he was doing, which was using religion to justify bad behavior. So we might be right back to it's complicated. I mean, I'm tended to lean more on your side actually of it, but I feel like that message was stronger, but it is at least problematized a bit. Okay. And so, Oh God, what about Holly being, being a woman? Are there other examples of, I guess what we said before was that Franklin's less hegemonic masculinity or, or somewhat feminized masculinity is not problematized. Jake Gyllenhaal is, he acts very hegemonically masculine. Um, Except, except one of the core components, uh, as I teach it, to hegemonic masculinity is the, oh, no, that's not true. It, it, I was going to say is, uh, 
is the ability to enact violence. And so anger is your, your foremost emotion. And he, he loses his temper too. And he does use violence. The other, whenever he has a, an opportunity to use it, he uses it with Taylor, whatever his name, the snake pig's blood guy. I mean, a second he resists, he like mashes him into the wall and is very brutal with him, arresting him. And then obviously the suicide and he destroys his desk and whatnot. So they are definitely icons of masculinity. And like you said, an individualistic masculinity, which is core component. And then we have Holly who is our villain. So is that a, is there a misogyny? Is there a sexism component there of, except for the fact that she still stands as like an anchor point of evil. We don't have any pity for her, right? It's like, oh, well, your kid died and that sucks, but you've been destroying kids for 30 years. Since then, we're done with pity for you. I never felt sorry for her. I always I felt like she was evil. I have two thoughts, and I'm not sure if either one I'm going to stand behind, but I'm going to try both of them out. One, I did feel pity for Holly at the beginning before we mm. knew she was trouble. And I wonder if to some extent this could be one of those reflections of societal stereotypes playing out in the film that by having her be a woman, she's not suspected the way we would have suspected potentially a man, a man there by himself raising his young, whatever. It's like Marco Rubio, right? <laughs> he might have been more suspicious. <laughs> suspicious Marco Rubio. I don't the rest of the world. <laughs> I know that was totally a non sequitur. Sorry, go ahead. It just popped in my head. Sorry. <laughs> okay, and second to that, second to that, I'm thinking also along the lines of reflecting problematic stereotypes that to the extent that some of this was an argument around masculinity and individualistic masculinity, if she had been a man, she would have been part of that equation and part of that argument. And kind of like the older daughter in the African-American family, she's not a piece of that. So when, when Keller is struggling and when Keller takes Alex, it's between Keller and Alex, but there, Alex doesn't have a protector at home. Like when Keller goes to her house, she's not, she doesn't enter into that equation. The kid is missing, the kid Alex is missing, and his caretaker now wants to know where he is and what's going on with him. Had that been a man then that might have been juxtaposed somehow with, with Keller's response to his child missing or something. And maybe it wasn't because she was a woman. So I wondered if either of those could have played into that decision, which themselves are both coming from stereotypical roots, if that's the case, but may have made it more effective when you're shocked. Like, oh my gosh, the sweet old lady who was taking care of her nephew. Consistent with that is the fact that Alex's parent was a single mother. When uh, Loki goes and visits her, there's no mention of husband. There's no, you know, she was like, I'm taking a nap. He goes out, plays, whatever. I wake up. And so there was no uh, Keller to go into, you know, psychotic rage and, and go through all this. So yeah, that would be, day or muck it up. We don't know. Right. <laughs> we don't know what the film is necessarily, if they're giving us a referendum on that. But. Right. That would support that idea. I, I like that. So, but again, though, so if I understand that we're saying that things are left intentionally ambiguous, and I agree with that, I concur completely. But 
Holly being the one who has continued this kidnapping and killing of children for many years after her father was, or her husband was, was dead and not, not, not doing it anymore. And Alex's mother was not only unable to keep him safe, but was unable to retrieve him while Loki and Keller, however problematic and at whatever cost, they were still ultimately able to retrieve the girls. Is there a villainization of, of uh, the women? I was actually going to say the opposite. I was going to say oh. that my thought as you were saying that was it, I'm sorry, what was her name now? Holly? Holly. Was that Holly was a formidable opponent. She was capable. That she was. She was competent. She got done what she needed to get done. She had no problem disposing of Keller. She was thoughtful. She didn't play out problematic feminine tropes. And, well, yeah. you know, and also to counter that with some of the other women in the film that, you know, especially Keller's wife, who played out that trope, but she maybe we don't necessarily indict the film because there are people who play out that trope in real life. And maybe you want one of them in your film. It's not like you have to have everybody eclipse every stereotype ever, because that's, that's not going to tell a story necessarily. So it's okay that Keller's wife is the person who married Keller and that's their dynamic. And that's sort of this piece of what that story is about. But I do feel like she counterbalanced that somewhat, at least. I think that's an excellent point. I think maybe that's, that's my, uh, some of that is my blinders of, of being so used to Hollywood films being sexist and, and uh, uh, misogynist. I mean, I think you're right. And I think in particular that Holly was, like you said, able to dispose of, of Keller really without too much trouble. Well, she's also been successful for years. So even though they've saved these two girls, like you said, she's a very formidable opponent. She, in her world, quote unquote, she has won. She has waged her war for most of her life. And okay, she loses this, but in the, you know, if you're putting ticks up on the win loss, she's ahead. So yes, I, I very much actually agree with that. And then I was going to say, in addition to that, Loki really only is able to save Keller by chance, right? chance and persistence he's not still looking he's there and he's like you know what i mean like he's not and it's the little girl's whistle that is what saves him so it's not keller is keller has been bested basically and i think i think keller and loki both succeed but most certainly most i would argue almost all actually of their effectiveness is like I said, butterfly effect, effectiveness. It happens to be that if they hadn't done certain things, things wouldn't have panned out. Aside from maybe Loki's persistence, I do think that's yeah. a relevant point. You know, the case was over, presumably the girls were home and he still shows back up at this site. And we're told throughout the film, you know, oh, you should go have a family, stop focusing so much on this. And, and I, I found that persistence and also to be problematized, like I said, particularly when he's driving with the girl through the traffic, I thought that was a very clear example of he's focused on this, but mm. he's causing all this other havoc and harm potentially that he's, mm-hmm. he's ignoring, I guess. So I don't know if the persistence was necessarily entirely seen as a good thing or not, but I do think the majority of it really was luck. Mm-hmm. It was happenstance that what they did worked out, but it was... It was luck. I mean, Loki would have 
neglected to look after that fa Alex's family. He was done with that piece of the, the investigation. And so if Keller hadn't pushed it, Loki wouldn't have probably gotten there. I mean, maybe what's his name? The, the victim would have ended up as the one pegged for the crime. Maybe he wouldn't have, we don't know because if it was pig's blood and yada, yada, they would have figured that out too. So I don't know, but whether Loki would have gotten there or not is really unclear. He just happened to be standing in the right place at the end to, to get Keller. I mean, that was persistence slash luck and Keller. I mean, he, he ended up unleashing the chain of events that led to the girls being found, but he was meanwhile in a hole in the ground. So right, right. he didn't really do it exactly. <laughs> he just, he happened to do things that eventually ended up causing it to happen, but that wasn't entirely his own, his own doing. It definitely dilutes. And I'm going to throw this in here in terms of film and film genres. And uh, this will circle back to what you were just saying. It, it's a, a really compelling deconstruction of the genres of the detective procedural subgenre and the vigilante subgenre. And by that, I mean the like, and you were saying this earlier, which is why I made the notes. So I want to credit you with that. Like you said of the, the detective, you know, there's this horrible crime and the detective goes through and there's some challenges, but they're able to outsmart that and, it goes back and forth and yada, yada, but whatever the detective is able through skill and persistence and talent able to, to solve the crime and save the person or whatever it is. But with exactly what you, all you're saying is all of that's complicated and it's, it is a deconstruction. It is not a, it's not a, it's not a pink Panther where it's someone who's just bumbling, which would be the one, one end of the continuum of, just by sheer humorous incompetence and, and coincidence does, is someone able to solve the crime? I feel like there's another example of that, but I can't think of it. Pink Panther is fine. And then the other end of that would be the, the really savage, savvy, skillful Sherlock Holmes type detective. And they avoid the binary here by, by he is a good detective. He is well you know, he's thorough, he's doing all the right things. Uh, but like you said, there's coincidence, it's a crucial component of that. He does have his bits where he kind of puts things together, but some of it is luck, some of it is his, it's not really like him moving through, sorting things out. He doesn't have his big board with all the victims and the yarn and whatever that he has this epiphany and oh, some even with a twist. Right. I mean, sometimes he does things that are just wrong and cause problems and he's never redeemed for that. It's not like, oh, well, fortunately he had the foresight to do that. It's just like, well, no, he totally screwed that up. Totally. And then, it, and then I just want to reinforce again within the film, just the history of film, what you were saying before about also it's not a vigilante justice. It's not Death Wish. It's not, you know, the film, you know, his family was horribly m mowed down and raped. Uh, I don't know when the last time you've seen a Death Wish film is, but... And he goes out and, well, the cops have failed. So now he's going to take out criminals, maybe the criminals that did it to his family, maybe other criminals, whoever it is. And he's going to be vindicated and he's the good person. Obviously, the systems were failing. And then I'm trying to think what happens with Death Wish. And then the cops end up investigating him. I mean, there were like four sequels to Death Wish, so I can't can't remember what happens at the end of Death Wish. And I just rewatched that within like the last couple of years because of 
because of a lot of reasons. Well, in part because they remade it. Eli Roth, I think. Somebody in the Splat Pack remade Death Wish. But Bruce Willis, it's actually a surprisingly entertaining film. Anyway, it's neither of those. And those are both within the history of film very much masculine genres, patriarchy, patriarchal institution, effective or, or individual. But it really, so by having what you were saying, where we have these two symbols of this long history and neither one of them is really thoroughly, clearly effective or useful or victorious or any of these classic things, it really, there is a challenge to like some masculinity there. And the and the notion of of this hegemonic masculinity, whether it's attributed to, or attached to institutional power, or whether it's attached to individualistic vigilantism, neither one of them. Like working together, they are. But even working together, they do actually end up getting the girls back. But again, as we've said throughout, even doing so, it's still like a at best a pyrrhic victory. It's still not a like yay, we saved the day. Like, there's no joy at the end of the film, which is another nod to Martyrs, I think, which I appreciate. Yeah, okay, so he gets saved, but all this other shit has happened, so they still are alive, but at what price? Uh, um, that is very interesting and, and to me very impressive as well. I fully agree with that. Yeah, and I think we're, we're really landing on the strength of the film and wrapping up this conversation here that it it did all of those things and it did them all thoughtfully and in a nuanced way. And there's still a piece of me that is bothered by the fact that I think the most simplistic read, if you were to take, if you were to try to read it simply, I think the most simplistic read could be a triumph of that form of individualistic masculinity. And so it bothers me a little that I think if we were to weigh the sides of the teeter-totter, even though we're clearly saying that both sides are there, I think that side is a little heavier and it bothers me a bit that it is. And I, I would like it to potentially even have ended. Oh God. I like that it ended with a question it, that it didn't answer this for you, but maybe just a couple more pieces in there to tip the scale back a bit. I think the, the scale was a bit heavy on the individualistic vigilante justice wins out. But even so, I think everything that you say just holds that it, it did all of that really well. And it, it certainly did problematize it. It didn't lay it out as a clear cut, here's our hero and here's the victory. Yeah. So maybe this is a good, uh, obviously add something in if you want, but the last thing I have on my list of notes is, so something that we argue, that I argue, that uh, we argue is that we are particularly interested and invested in horror films because they are uniquely suited to, as a genre, horror is uniquely suited to exploring these extremes of, of questions about humanity and morality and behavior. And so my question is, is this a horror film? And if it's not a horror film, how does that jibe with our claim that horror is the best genre for exploring all this shit if this is not a horror film and it does such an exemplary job of exploring all this shit. Okay, I, I want to take a stab at that question. Awesome. I think it borrows the conventions of horror. If it's not a horror film, it absolutely utilizes horror conventions. And the horror convention specifically, I mean, is 
really walking people through the violence that is being enacted in a very human way. And I, there's another film, and I, I think I've referenced this before, and I think you have been able to figure out what film it is. So try again, because I think you've done it before. It was a film about some sort of mafia thing. And, oh, oh, East, Eastern Promises. Wait, was that oh, it? Yeah. Oh, Eastern and Promises. Awesome. The best part of that film, there was a scene where they were somewhere. I don't know. I don't remember. And they, they start cutting off some guy's fingers. And it's just a horribly painful scene because they make you watch it. They just make you watch and it's not, it's not overly dramatized, but you're just there for that piece of it. And it's not even, I mean, the grand scheme of the types of violence that one might inflict in that field of work, it sure it gets worse. But I, I still remember that. And I just remember appreciating that film so much because, and I loved it. I thought it was a great film. And I would normally maybe have strayed from that or, or not really been super drawn to that type of like crime drama. But it was great because it didn't just tell you this hero narrative in the context of like crime and good guys and bad guys and here's who's fighting with who or how this is playing out. It very, very much was like, oh, okay, some sort of violence is going to be enacted. Let's see what that feels like. And let's just take you in the room so you can feel it. And that I think is the strength of horror that it, it, it doesn't skip those parts. And by not skipping them, it, it just, it's a much more complex and deeper argument that can be made. And so I don't know if I would call it horror. I guess I would probably call it some sort of action thriller or something or other. But I think it, it did what horror films do. And normally that genre skips that part. Normally somebody would have gotten mowed down or hurt or whatever, but it wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have painfully walked through the brutality of the experience of, of torturing someone the way that you did in this film. Well, I'm glad you were able to answer that question because I, th- I loved your argument. I love your argument. I didn't have, I didn't have it. I didn't have that to make. So I, I appreciate that. But I did ask because I, I mean, I was on IMDb looking at this film. Cause I, like I said, I was looking up the screenwriter and whatnot and the genre lists, the genres it's categorized as our crime drama, mystery thriller. And I was like, kind of, as I was watching it too, I was like, is this a horror movie? But I think you're absolutely right. And my, my final thought on that is it's like the opposite of Taken. So to go back to what I was saying about the procedural like detective and the vigilante, Taken takes those two genres and puts them together. He is a vigilante, but he also has the institutional power of all these connections of his CIA history or years or whatever. But then just like you said, they basically skip the horror. Like there's all this action and fighting and he does terrible things to people, but it's quick and painless relatively it's only enough you see to like oh they're out of the way that obstacle Um, exactly exactly that's it it's like the piece of the puzzle got disposed of but there's nothing about the process of doing the disposal and he he doesn't ever make any mistakes he's he just moves through the path and it's his masculinity that drives him and his all all of this so this is like this is the anti-taken or the untaken <laughs> for the record i thoroughly enjoy taken i just rewatched that as well <laughs> uh and final final note if you enjoyed taken you should watch destroyer which is uh the feminist ish version of taken directed by the same person Okay, as long as they're throwing out film recommendations. In this category, I will reaffirm, I think, I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember absolutely loving Eastern Promises. And I also really loved In Bruges, which also is not 
by any standard definition a horror film, but was just so much better than that genre usually is because I felt that it, my memory is that it, it walked you through really compelling emotional experiences related to the types of crimes and the types of behavior these people were doing. And, and it was just really, really good. Isn't, I haven't seen it in Bruges. I was, uh, go back to this, it's totally sad that I have this to say about so many films, but I watched it when I was still getting super high. Isn't it kind of like, uh, like the satire version of this film? Isn't there a lot of satire in it? Not that I'm recalling, but it was a really long time. What I remember was the, the emotional impact of some of the decisions that they made. Okay. It weighed heavier than I, by far heavier than I would have expected in a film of that genre. Kind of like you're saying with Taken, that it's often more about the sportsmanship and puzzle than it is about the actual humanity of what's being done. And I felt like in Bruges highlighted humanity. I just looked, I, this is a terrible oversight, The feminist kind of version of Taken is Peppermint, not Destroyer. That's a separate film, Peppermint. Yeah, I see in Brew reference. That's a film I've meant to go back and rewatch, but I haven't. That's interesting. I don't know where I got the satire from. I just have that somewhere in my brain. Eastern Promises is a phenomenal film. It's a Cronenberg film. So it's a director that is from the horror genre and obviously worked within that. And I think the, like you're saying, the, the horror elements in a maybe not otherwise obviously horror film is exactly comparable in Eastern Promises to this. So I think that's a great comparison. Is that it? Great. I think so. That was fun. I'm so glad yeah. we did this. I totally wanted to talk about this movie, and particularly with you, because yeah, all that, you, you totally get it. It's exactly why I, the conversation we just had, all that nuance and like all these questions and like open questions and characters that are totally challenging. Yeah, so awesome. Absolutely, and thank you for having me watch it. And thank you, I thought, for having me watch it back in 2013. If that was not you, then I will thank whoever that was. But in my memory, it was you. So you may have motivated this twice. But yeah, it was a great experience. I may have. Okay, we, yes, we grade films based on our assessment of their social responsibility. There's a number of factors to this. They are divorced, for the most part, from... They're divorced from whether or not we enjoyed the film. They're not separated from the emotional experience of the film. So in terms of social responsibility, I'm going to give it an A, a high A, mostly because in simplest terms, who you empathize with, who is presented as good and evil are two of the core components of our rubric for this within the film and humanizing and creating strong, rich empathy for a variety of characters who are, who are engaging in a variety of, of behavior and understanding all of that. For me, it, it was enough when there was not much, that would not be enough by itself, except that there, was, there were not other po- points where the film was really problematic or, or, or upsetting. There was, there was actually decent representation. Yes, the black family still was, was a secondary, but as Laura emphasized, there were, points like that where often those would not be people of color so it was it was better than than some Um, and arguably it was better than like i said leading the if you switch the the racial breakdown of the two families and then still had our 
individualistic masculinity play out the way it did, that might have been more problematic to have that be a black family. So I feel like it often, it skirted these lines of, I think it made the decision I might ultimately land on also, but I was still critical sometimes. And, mm. and I, I mean, just like that, oh, gee, I don't know about this. Maybe the way you did that is a problem. And then the more I thought through it, the more I wasn't so sure. So yeah, I think it certainly ranks fairly high in responsibility in that way. So yeah, I'm I'm high. I think it's an extraordinary film. I appreciate I suggested it. I'm glad, Laura, you're you're willing to revisit it and and talk it through. I'm glad it's vindicated because sometimes we do this and we watch it and we're like, oh god, that was after our analysis that was totally problematic and and upsetting and terrible. And uh, I, I'm so relieved that that this withstood analysis. I agree with you. I agree with you. After I like recommended Tucker and Dale to like 9,000 people and then the next day sat and talked through it more with you and thought, oh gosh, can I go back and make all those phone calls and text messages all over again? <laughs> yeah, I remember you saying that, yeah. Oh, uh, but I didn't, I didn't grade it. So I agree with you in the relatively like high A, I'm thinking like 95 to 97. And I would dock it. This is definitely one of those cases where I would dock it some points just to make them read the comments because I want them to actually notice and pay attention to some of the commentary that we had. But also, I I do think the biggest critique I have of the film is that I think the teeter-totter could have been tipped just a bit in the direction of problematizing the individualistic masculinity that kind of won out at the end. I, I think it did problematize it, but I wonder if it could have just a hair more, because I do think there could be a read on the film that would just say, hey, those guys took charge of the day and they won and you know, they accomplished everything and great. I don't think it's the most obvious read, but I think it could be there. So I would like to see it just, just slightly taken down a notch. All right. Thanks for listening. This was longer an episode we, than most, which says uh, we, we just talk as long as it needs to be discussed. So thanks for joining us. Horror films are our collective nightmares. So glad you said that. That was actually two and a half hours. It's good. So the movie and our discussion are equally long. <laughs> I think that's a credit to the film also. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes we watch two hours of movie and we're like, I have nothing to say about this film. <laughs> Into the wind or, or wind or wind river or whatever the fuck it you was. Know, for, for as often as we mention the wind, you still have the recording. I almost wonder if we should release it just because I think we dropped it out in part. There was like a protest movement that was happening in the podcast at the moment after the wind and what was it? Tale of Two Sisters and something else. And Knives and Skin for me came on the end of that stretch, which is also why I think I was less willing to give it grace in that regard because it was just, yeah, we'd had a struggle of a, a series of a struggle films. I think I'm missing at least one in there, if not more. I don't know, but we, we talk about it all the time, that said. So it's like become iconic for films that it, it wasn't exactly that we had nothing to say about it, but we had what we had nothing to say about was that bellhop movie, whatever the heck that was. Piercing. Piercing. Oh, yeah. That was like nothing. But the anyway, I wonder if we should <laughs> publish a bonus episode of The Wind and even Piercing because...
Even with piercing. Piercing. You're right. Just with the caveat that people should know to expect, put out, put out two in a week or something so that, you know, we're not saying this is actually interesting. <laughs> Just in case you're curious, here's why we keep talking about these films, because sometimes we talk for two and a half hours and sometimes we have nothing to say. No, that's totally a great, great idea. The bonus. And maybe if we build up a few of those, we could offer that as like a, a Patreon. Like if you chip us a couple bucks, you get access to this archive of bonus episodes. What I was going to say is it's so interesting that you're right. I think we had less to say about piercing than the wind, but I liked piercing more than the wind. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree because the wind was sort of angering, but there was, there was like one thing I remember liking about the wind. I've actually used it in class a couple times. Oh my um, God. <laughs> no, I, we don't like, we should still be talking. We should end this conversation right now, but I'm going to say this anyway. The scene where the, 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 the two fa- the two families are on the prairie, like seven miles apart or whatever the heck they are. And in the middle of the night, the wife and one of the families is having some sort of problem. And the husband, rather than just dealing with it and trying to help her or whatever, treks the seven miles over to the other <laughs> house to wake up the woman in that house to be like, oh I think there's some sort of woman problem that my wife is having. She could be having a baby or maybe she's like neurotic or I don't know what, you know whatever could be wrong. Can you like, please hike the seven miles back with me and go deal with her? Cause like, I don't do emotions. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stand outside and nod to the man and then you go figure out why she's crying under the bed or whatever. Uh, and that, I think I actually appreciate that. <laughs> that is a totally valid reason to use that film in class. <laughs> oh my God, get over it. You pioneer, supposed masculine prairie man, just fucking like, suck it up and your wife didn't he think it was some sort of woman i swear he's like yeah maybe she has her period or i don't know if he said that but i feel like there was some note of there might be a thing happening i don't understand <laughs> and then he was it wasn't like he could just go next door that would have been weird enough but he like he he hiked it across the prairie I, yeah i think you're right i've minimal recollection of that film even though i was sober as all fuck or as all hell getting <laughs> watching it so uh all right and Franklin's quote feminine feminist fe- feminacy. Um, Franklin's feminine. Oh, <laughs> the dog stranded. Hang on. Oh, Dexter, you scamp. He's apparently been standing there for twenty minutes. He's so old now that when he jumps up on the thing by the door, like the whatever little shoe container thing, he can't get back down. So, like, if he jumps up to, like, watch somebody uh, leave or somebody come, he's, like, stuck there. And I just looked over, and he was kind of looking at me. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to make him sit there for an hour and a half podcast. Oh, Dexter's getting old. I know. It's sad. <laughs> and, uh, right. So you need to get him a little stare? Oh, I guess so. Or just, I mean, he doesn't usually jump up there because he knows he can't get down. But, oh, but he if gets he gets excited because somebody's leaving and somebody's getting here, sometimes you find him stuck. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I could. I could get a stare. So what's now is your bedtime? Oh my gosh, it's eight o'clock. I know the dog is standing by the door asking to go to the bathroom for the last two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna take the dog out. And, okay. Uh, oh yeah, I don't have to go to bed immediately actually, which is nice. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Wow, this is awesome. It was super fun. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh I I guess we can text figure out what we want to watch next yeah let's t- oh we're gonna do next week right and then maybe do the article the following yeah i i don't i won't have 
enough to give you until at least at least next week, maybe two. That sounds good. You said in the Fantasy Island episode, the one I just listened to, which I think was Fantasy Island, you said something about an upcoming film and it was something I wanted to see and now I forgot what it was. But maybe we can go back and look at that because maybe we could see that since that was a long time ago, it might be available. <sighs> right. Uh, well, if you remember what it is or you have I can an go idea. Back. Yeah. And look, I totally forgot. Uh, I mean, I have I have a list of other potential, but if that sounded good, I mean, I suggested this. If you want to push something forward, uh, I, I'm open to that. Yeah, let's think about it. I think my okay. brain's tired at the moment, but yeah, figure it out. Okay. All right. Well, I love this. I appreciate everything, Laura. Uh, I'll be in touch. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Bye. 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 Hippo's huge. <laughs> he's, he's getting bigger, yeah. Put him down already? Hold, hold him up. Yeah. Can I see him? Maybe. Oh, he's not allowed on the table. <laughs> ah, he's so cute. He is so cute. He's so cute. Do you want to go back down? Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, should we do our intro? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, a secondary victim. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I, I make that complicated, more complicated than it is. Ah, I was going to say one other thing that I can put in like outtakes as, as kind of an Easter egg. And that is, if you listen really closely, when Jake Gyllenhaal goes in and confronts Holly, when Loki goes in and confronts Holly and stops her when she has like the needle in Anna's arm, it's very quiet, but you can hear the whistle that uh, Keller is blowing. Oh, really? A couple times, maybe three times. Uh, I, had my, I, ha- I had the movie up loud, partly because of my air conditioner running. And, and then I had read something about Villeneuve being really focused on sound design. And I was like, I wonder if that's there. And I, I swear it's there. It's real low. It's like barely audible, but I was like, oh, that's cool. That's very cool. So, so there's a little nugget if anybody's still listening to this. <laughs> I love our conversations, damn it. They can listen for two full hours because it's good. <laughs> well, I know I had time. <laughs> I, I really love your intro was awesome. Yes. We never graded captive. it. Marshall? Oh my God, Laura. I know the clock is burning, but let's do it fast. Yes. (laughs) I think it'll be easy. Right.